of Thick and Thin Hoops, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nathan. What's good, Nathan? We did exactly what we said we weren't going to do a week later, which is skip a week of, of episodes. But um, nonetheless, we are back. Um, we promise we're not doing this intentionally. Life is getting busy, you know what I mean? Like, there's just too much going on. Um, you were You were on a work trip after our New York trip, which is, you know something I would not wish on anyone really. Uh, but, but you were busy. I was busy. So, but we're back now. So hopefully we'll good until we get disrupted again for Christmas and new year's. Look, it's topical, man, because we're going to talk about Zion today. I was out in new Orleans last week on bourbon street, looking, looking for Zion at all of the local fried chicken <laughs> establishments to see, uh, what, what kind of diet he's maintaining. So I'll, you know, I was doing some on the ground reporting. I, I hope you, you know, you got the pulse of the city during that trip like what people's freakout levels are versus whether they know that the Pelican season's actually started already. Cause I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one of the spectrum it is. Like, are they aware of it or are they freaking out about it? I don't know. Yeah. I still don't think half that city even knows who the Pelicans are. Um, if you ask them to be honest. So the problem is the saints kind of sucked this year and LSU kind of sucked. So you couldn't even really get them distracted with the way you normally would. If there's any year for the Pelicans to be good for Zion to be good, it would have been this year. And yeah. they, Failed to capitalize on it, so I don't know. Yep. But before we get to Zion, the Pelicans, and the overall NBA landscape, we got to start this podcast uh, with the same way we've started far too many of these episodes for what feels like almost the entirety of the thick and thin tenure, which is uh, COVID nineteen. Now, as we approach twenty twenty two, so COVID nineteen, named for the year it was formed, is still absolutely demolishing the world as a whole, but specifically in this context, the sports world. So. To recap, you know, what the last few days have been like, um, the NFL had 75 combined positive tests uh, between Monday and Tuesday. The NBA, I don't have the number on me off the top of my head, but, you know, the Bulls have 10 players. The Lakers have three or four players. The Sixers had seven or eight players at once, all on the COVID list. Now, let's remember, the NBA has a 97% vaccination rate. So nearly every single one of these cases is a breakthrough case, which the early indications of the Omicron variant is that it's been affecting the breakthrough cases, or sorry, the vaccinated population the most, uh, partially because I'm sure the unvaccinated just got Delta and therefore have some kind of pre-existing natural immunity in the immediate term. Um, whereas the vaccinated population now is coming off of a vaccine that may have worn off a bit in terms of effectiveness. So a lot going on. Um, Omicron is four times as contagious as Delta, which was twice as contagious as the initial um, strain. So we are pretty far down the path of, of where it's going to end up, where almost everyone in the country is going to get this at some point. So I guess big picture, what is your takeaway from this latest challenge that not just the NBA, but all of these leagues are having to deal with? And how do you think they should approach this while trying to you know, run some semblance of a kind of season with any type of continuity here well you know putting the nfl aside the nba i think is in a tough spot because ultimately the reason this is all happening is because the protocols have become more lax this year mm -hmm. um you know and, and which made sense at the time you know at the start of the season we we're not going to be policing this as tightly as we did last year but now with all uh, the nba is looking to tighten things up they're obviously getting kind of more um, now they're actually postponing games. And, and for a while, they were letting teams kind of just 
you know, I think with the Bulls, it, it spread a little. You can tell it actually spread from game to game. Mm-hmm. Um, and they weren't as uh, enforcing as tightly. I think now it's hard to put the cat back in the bag, right? Like, I don't know how they can go back to really tight port- protocols and how they're going to actually manage this moving forward. Yep. Um, because players aren't going to, like, after you've gotten a taste of that freedom and, and kind of the mobility everyone has this season. Yep. It's going to be harder to to police it, and so I think this this might continue to be a problem in the short short term. And it's crazy that this season's I think already worse from a COVID game standpoint, right, than last year. Yep. Um, and what we're thirty games in, so I I honestly don't know what the solution is because, I mean, imagine if I told you all of a sudden you got to go into lockdown or something. I don't know, I don't know what the equivalent is for us, but. Uh, yeah, I think that would it's, be it, right? Like, we already have mask mandates, I think, where you live, where I live. Uh, yeah. I just came back in New York, so some of that stuff is already coming. But, yeah, dude, I mean, there's a fatigue element, right, which human nature is that after almost two years of kind of banging the drum of COVID protocols, there's people who are naturally going to get tired of it, especially even those who are taking precautions, right, the ones that are wearing masks and getting vaccinated when they can and all those kinds of things. There's going to be that element. But then you add in the layer of these are NBA players in peak physical condition at the exact age that has virtually zero risk. And they're like, we've done everything you asked for. Now you're telling us that it all was for what? For not? Because I didn't want to get vaccinated, right? Like if you're a player who was a little bit hesitant, Andrew Wiggins, right? He's like, I didn't want to do this. Like you told me my money was at stake and this was going to be some huge thing. And now you're telling me we're all back to what we were before. Like, what you know, what's going on? And like, I can understand that. I think to your point, I mean, this is clearly a result of, like you said, the lax protocols. They don't test, right? So here's my question. I think at the very least, I know the testing is a big pain in the ass, and they all talked about it last year, you know, coming off a road trip, get back to the hotel at 2 a.m. Somehow you got to be at 7 a.m. at the facility for your first of the three tests. I think even if we don't go back to something as intense as that, it does feel like we should at least be able to test daily. Uh, whether you're vaccinated or not, right? So the rules can still exist where, you know, you can go out, you can be maskless, et cetera, whatever those rules are. But it feels like you can at least test daily so that you don't let it spread. Because one of the reasons this is happening is, aside from Omicron's kind of, uh, you know, higher degree of contagion, it's it's because they're just not testing anyone. And so then there's huge swarms of people who are infecting one another and then by the time they're symptomatic, they come back and have to test everyone else. They're like, oh, shit, they all had it. Like, we should have known this ahead of time, right? And they're they're catching it all retroactively versus proactively. So it feels like that's a change that couldn't be that difficult to implement and still not really affect, you know, what they're able to do behaviorally. Well, that's a good point, actually. I forgot that they're not testing as... Um... They don't test unless you have symptoms if you're vaccinated. Yeah. Hey, yeah, so just the frequency of testing increasing that, I think, will help curb a lot of this because the spread's not going to happen. Um, I mean, because you can only imagine, right? All these guys are, they're all on the plane together. They're at practice. It's, it, you can see how it'll quickly spread. Yeah. I, I do wonder, I mean, I'm glad I'm, I'm not hearing from the Wiggins of the world yet, Kyrie's of the world, because this could be their victory lap in which yeah. they're like, look, it, nothing matters apparently. Even the vaccinated population's getting it. And, and that's the discourse I don't want to emerge again, right? Because it's like, how much do we have to beat this dead horse? with the Cole Beasley and Kyrie and, and about whether Aaron Rodgers and all these yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah. I hope these guys just realize that, okay, more frequent testing, just be a little bit more cautious. This thing is still contagious, it's still out there and, and we'll get it under control. But it's, it's a bummer, man, because it, you know, 
we had the bubble season, which was an asterisk season. We had a weird COVID season. The last thing you want is for this year to feel like it's been impacted, right? That's three yeah. seasons now that have been somehow impacted by COVID. To your point that you just made about kind of like losing that argument or debate, I'm almost more terrified of that than I am of like, you know, people who are vaccinated and healthy getting COVID in this form, right? Which is Wh- like which a le- side of the debate were you on again? I, I forget sometimes. <laughs> I'm boosted, baby. Fanduel <laughs> and Pfizer, boosted in both regards. Um, but like, I'm so worried that it's already on a tenuous balance. And originally, when the data came out, it was like 95, 96 percent efficacy, and you know, then it was like, well, that was pre-Delta, and then Delta brought it down, and now. Pfizer just came out with the study saying with two doses, it's 30%, but with the booster, it's 70%. And you can start to piece together how this is going to end up endemic, right? And therefore, some type of annual shot the way we'd have with the flu. But because of the intensity in which we've attacked managing COVID, which is obviously much unlike anything we've ever done for the flu, the people who are skeptical are going to expect that reaction or our response to be just as effective as the virus was in taking out our society. Does that make sense? Yep. And the fact that it's not because this isn't a linear path, right? We're st- again, this is a novel virus. We're all still trying to deal with it as much as we think that we've been in this forever. It hasn't been that long. It's 20 months of data or whatever. Um, I'm really worried because I do think that the, that voice is going to go stronger and it's going to be less, it's going to be way more difficult to ask of people to go get that next booster, to go get that next shot or whatever it is. And then we are going to end up kind of drifting back to where we were in like 2020 to some degree, where it's like we have large population, large portion of the population that are unvaxxed from whatever is the latest thing that they put out, even from people who got all the other ones, right? Because they may be like, whatever, dude, I'm not doing this anymore. So that's what I worry about. Um, and I think that ex- that extends and probably really magnifies in the sports world where, again, all these people are probably not the top of the risk demographic from a COVID standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely correct. And at the end of the day, you got to hope that because so much is on the line for these guys with the paychecks and stuff like that, most people will fall in line. It's just yeah. that there's the vocal minority is is always <laughs> the one that's the loudest, right? So, um, Did you hear Kyrie... <laughs> like only Kyrie could really come out with this headline is that apparently they're developing some type of plant-based COVID vaccine that if it gets approved, he may take that one. This was not written by the onion. This is a true article. I did not know that. Is that, is that what's leading to these reports saying he may come back and play this season? I think those are two separate things, but (laughs) yeah, maybe, but yeah, impossible, impossible shot is going to be developed. And then, they just got to plant a label on like the Pfizer vaccine and I don't know, call it whatever they want. The, put a third eye on top of the, the beyond surge. COVID <laughs> beyond COVID and then let them take it. man. That's yeah. It's point. funny. Cause they, he was like, yeah, him and KD have been talking a lot about his fit on the team. I was like, what the fuck do you mean? His fit on the team, come back and play. The fit will be fine. Like just get your shot and come back and play. KD had to play 48 minutes tonight versus some scrub Toronto team. Cause he had no help. They honestly started a guy named David Duke tonight, <laughs> which is really an unfortunate name for a lot of reasons. But my God, now that he's a starter next to KD, he's getting more shine than he I mean, he if wants Kyrie to. really was as woke as he says he is, he would not let a guy named David Duke take his place. Right, right, exactly. So nonetheless, I mean, I think, I don't know, man, like the NFL too, it's like 
the Browns had eight guys. They were all vaccinated. They can all come back with two negative tests 24 hours apart, just like the NBA. But again, just because you got J&J shot in April almost has no bearing on what, you know, your body might have or not have in terms of like the the longevity of your viral today, right? Like things have changed from there. And so I think, you know, the, the leagues are now going to, I heard the NBA is actually going to change their vaccination requirements to include the booster. Right. So that's going to be a new part of the thing. And we're just going to have to see kind of what the uptick's going to be. And then what these case counts are going to be, because, you know, if Omicron's more contagious, but less deadly, that's overall a positive thing. And it, pushes us closer to this endemic future. I guess my question to you is, do you think that we're going to end up in a world or do you think we should end up in a world where we stop testing? I I know I just advocated for testing every day, everyone, because that'll allow you to detect where the spread's coming from. The flip side of this argument that's coming out is, do you think we should just let people who are asymptomatic and vaccinated play if they, even if they're COVID positive? No, I I think there's still... I still don't think we know enough, man. I, I think this, at least for this season, they need to be a little more diligent with testing, with making these guys sit out, um, yeah. regardless of vaccination. Because um, we also have long haul COVID, right? We have that. We have myocarditis. We have actual ramifications health wise, not just about transmission that I think we need to protect for. Absolutely. And and just what's happened with Delta and Omicron, how fast things continue to change and evolve, I I don't think... I think this season they're going to have to get back to some kind of regular testing, regular protocols, and then you hope, you know, you hope by next season you don't have to deal with that or there's kind of, like you said, then it becomes, hopefully COVID becomes an annual, kind of like the flu shot, and you just manage it however. But uh, this season, I don't think they can afford to do that. It's just too risky. And at least, you know, the NBA, they're in a better position than the NFL. NFL, at least they have the week once a week, so it's not as bad, but the fact that this is happening right now, right as the playoff stretch is hitting, and you know, you hear about the Browns, a lot of guys, and um, or like you know, Odell Beckham, for example, on the Rams, like some big names. Who but are it's catching very confusing because it right he just played last night. It's like, so what happened to all those people he played with? Are they good? So are they not I, good? I don't know either. And then with the NFL, you have the problem of it feels like there's some high profile guys we didn't know who were unvaxxed and so all of a sudden if they get it they're out what like 10 days so yeah it's honestly a blessing rogers might have given it to himself now that i think about it he's like let's just get this over with like i was thinking about this right like rogers and lamar are both unvaccinated and they both had it and they're both going to be playoff quarterbacks most likely well rogers obviously i assume the ravens will get it together josh allen is unvaccinated he has not had it right kirk cousins is that's the belief it's not like confirmed Kirk Cousins is in the playoff race. We know he's unvaccinated. I don't think – I mean, he may have had – he said he did, but it could have been a while ago. I don't know. Um, but I was even thinking with the way this is, like, flaring up, like the Bucks, your team, 100% vaccination rate minus AB, it's not going to stop a Brady or a, Gr- uh, a Gronk or a Godwin no, or Lamonte David from getting it. Like, they're all vaccinated. I mean, like, what we're seeing is, like, it doesn't discriminate by any means at this point. So that's the scary part. Um, cause at least a year ago we were like, okay, I mean, actually not a year ago, but earlier we were under this belief that it's going to be a lot less likely, but based on everything we're seeing, it's like, none of these guys are safe. So, yeah, we'll see, man. I, I agreed that I don't like, I saw some people arguing for the, like, why are we just, just, why are we testing anymore? Um, I just think 
that seems pretty foolish and pretty short-sighted. And I think we're trying to solve like a short-term outcome where I think you could still make it work. We might just have to, to finish the season, go back to some pretty strict measures. And then hopefully by next year, there's something that's at least a little bit more uh, encouraging, but well, I mean, they can, they can afford the testing, right? Like what's, what's yeah, the that's not the issue. I mean, all of the, all it's, of that it's is an very, inconvenience for the players. Sure. Right. But. Right. I think that's the big thing, especially if you're on the road or you're at home and you want to be with your kids. You're like, no, I got to come to the facility on my off day, stuff like that. Like you just don't want to deal with that. Well, at least take at home tests or something, right? Like I know something. they're not as um, accurate, but some kind of. Have you taken one of those, by the way? I have not. So I did once, uh, or twice, I guess, because they come in packs of two. And um, it's hard to know if you've done it exactly right because <laughs> the, the instructions are a little confusing and you got to make these like huge swirls in your nose and then like rub it around with three rotations and like the palate that's actually like testing and then close the like envelope thing. And then it's like 15 minutes later and they're like, you, you cannot check before 15 minutes and you cannot check after 30 minutes. It's like these like really strict things and then you take it and then it's like basically it's kind of like the way a pregnancy test would show up where it's like two lines is your positive one lines your negative yeah but the way it's written it's like if you see anything that's even the faintest measure of a line a second line you're positive like it's not going to be binary like it's clear second line or it's not so you're, you're sitting here with like your magnifying glass being like is that is that a little bit of a speck of this line or is that like, I can't tell the whole thing is a nightmare. Both times I took it, I was negative, but like, I honestly don't like, no, like noobs and I were looking at it. Like, I don't know what's like, if if we're good or what constitutes a line or not. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So wow. Bucks guard Dante DiVincenzo just entered protocols as well. Um, Dwight Howard just did Giannis. So yeah, I saw Giannis earlier. James Harden. Yeah. Stacking up. Um, anyway, all right, let's get to the actual basketball because as weird of a season as this been with injuries, with COVID, everything else, there's a lot of good happening. Um, I want to start in Cleveland, which we've talked about him a little bit, right? We we spoke about Evan Mobley, I think, early on in, in his rookie tenure and just kind of how impressive he's been. They're now 17 and 12. And they're fourth in the Eastern Conference. And we're at the 30-game mark, right? 29 games that they've played. So we're almost, at, you know, we're over a third of the way through this season. And it's getting less and less fluky every day that this Cleveland team has stayed, um, you know, near the top of the East. And they've actually risen, right? Because they were kind of in that 8-9 range for a while and have moved up recently. So the, the, the number one thing I think with them is, so they lost Colin Sexton early in the year with the meniscus tear. He was a good player for them that often was a net negative when you looked at like on off court splits and that type of thing. But at the end of the day, a productive player. So people were sort of wondering, Jared Allen, I'm sorry, Evan Mobley got hurt. They are amazing defensively. Like it is working beyond my expectation. Um, You know, I was bullish on them preseason, but I thought they were going to be in like the four or five game under 500 type mix. They've blown me away, uh, specifically Allen, Mobley, Garland. All three of those guys have legit all-star candidacies, especially Allen and Garland. And I can't believe that this is happening for a team that was sort of seen to be stuck, right, in this post-LeBron morass where they didn't really have a blue chipper and they didn't really have a direction. So what stood out to you so far about Cleveland? Well, let's start with Mobley, obviously, Um, because I don't think it can be understated how big of an impact 
he's had, right? So th- this they were, I think, last year, um, when you look at defensively, I think 28th in the league in yep. defensive rating. They're, They're third horrendous. this year. Yeah. Um, and that leap, of course, Jared Allen has played a part. Of course, Okoro on the wing has been solid. But it's all really Mobley because, you know, their defense is 12 points per 100 possessions better with Mobley on the floor. Um, and to, for a rookie to have that kind of impact defensively, I think is huge. And, and it's the same phenomenon you see with any kind of switchable rim protecting bigs where all the guards, you know, Garland, Sexton, Rubio, none of these guys are, are defensive stalwarts, but all of a sudden it becomes easier for them to play defense on the perimeter because they can funnel everyone down into Mobley and Allen. There's a lot of size there. Um, and so those guys in the perimeter, you know, have less being asked of them and just as a whole the team defensively is just so good that it's keeping them in games like this season they're actually not great on offense right but still fourth best net rating in the league simply because their d's been that good so it starts with mobley and and the defensive identity which uh, you know these teams like cleveland these bad teams especially with suspect coaches like bickerstaff you never expect them to be good defensively they're always kind of one of those teams that gets hot on offense and will win a couple nights, will struggle to, to play defense, they'll always in shootouts. Yeah, I think the most impressive thing simply is just that this is a team built on a defensive identity. Yeah, I mean, if if you look at it, third in the league defensively, and like even if you just look at like their five man lineup with the starters played a hundred and uh, you know thirty nine minutes together, they're plus fourteen and point eight. Um, and again, like you said, this is a below average offense. This isn't lighting the world on fire. You know, Garland's been solid. Allen and Mobley have been solid, but they're not like scorched earth. Um, all they do is D your ass up. So 14.8, for example, would be by far the best net rating in the league. I think the Warriors have the highest around 11 or 12 as a team. So that shows you how good they are. If you look at just Jared Allen, if you look at his top 10 two-man combinations. So number one is... For for who's played enough minutes, it's him and Garland, then him and Mobley. The only lineup that he has a negative two-man combination with is with Colin Sexton, minus 6.8 points per 100 possessions, which shows you without Sexton, you've actually removed some of these minutes. It reminds me a lot of, you know, different position, different state of their career, but it reminds me of a lot of what happened to the Warriors last year when Wiseman got hurt. You never want to root for injury. You never want to hope for that by any stretch, but it was almost like, it unlocked the way that they want to play, which is all defense, all grit, kind of all aggression versus the way they had to play with a guy like Sexton, who's a different type of player in that lineup. Um, You know, as you know, I like to make uh, all-star teams and just lists and all those kinds of things. And I was making it about a week ago um, for the East and West. And I had 11 locks on my East team. And, that included Jared Allen as one of the 11. I, I shouldn't say locks. 11 people I felt comfortable about, a 12th one that was kind of a coin flip. At the time, I gave it to Bradley Beal. Uh, upon further review, I think Beal should consider retirement from the NBA before he makes an all-star team because he has been God, God awful. But nonetheless, I think that 12th spot, you could argue, should go to Darius Garland. Like yeah, I think when absolutely. you think about his pick-and-roll combination with both Allen and Mobley, the fact that he's shooting really well from three, He's career high across the board. Like this dude's kind of taken the leap that people were. If you remember, he only played, I think, four or five games at Vanderbilt uh, that first year and went mm-hmm. to the draft. We we almost knew nothing about him except that he was a, you know, high wire 
big time scorer. I don't know that I thought he had this kind of facilitation ability. He's been a revelation, I think, in keeping this thing together without Sexton. No, he's been amazing. His playmaking is definitely something that I don't think anyone saw coming. We all knew the shooting would be there. The scoring potential was there. Um, you know, you mentioned the Warriors. You know, it also reminds me a little bit of, now I know you might think this is blasphemy, but the 2012-2013 Warriors, 2014. So I thought you were going to say the Heat when you said that year and blasphemy. I was like, let's not no. compare them to the Heatles quite yet. Maybe. And Because they had a similar dilemma, right, with Steph and... Monte, Monte Ellis. Ellis. Yep. And Monte Ellis was kind of, of course, he's going to get you your 2025. 20, um, for anyone just looking at box scores, it's like, okay, what's wrong? Like Colin Sexton, there's nothing wrong with Colin Sexton. He's become a pr- really good player. But the problem is when he has the ball in his hands, you're taking it out of Garland's hand. And like you said, Garland's pick and roll, ability to run the pick and roll, his facilitated capabilities, that is a real strength for that team. Yep. And it's the same thing with Steph. Once Monte Ellis left the team, it, Steph was able to kind of you know develop that that playmaking ability as well and not just be a shooter or a scorer. And then you look at, you know, a young Draymond Mobley, kind of the young defensive centerpiece with like a David Lee, Jared Allen, a little bit more of a vet big in the in the middle. So give it, David Lee Kevin Love. He's right there for you. Oh yeah, Kevin. <laughs> the, the, the corpse of Kevin Love. Yeah. He hey, he's um, been playing b- better than I thought he was going to play. He okay, can we talk about Kevin Love? I I used to love Kevin Love, right? Because he was LeBron's sidekick. This dude, UCLA, the biggest front runner. Like, I mean, just last season, things aren't going his way. What he is throwing fits on the court. He is, and now all of a sudden, he's he's like the world's best teammate. He's like posting on Instagram, celebrating all of his like. Exactly. Get the fuck out of here, dude. Yeah, dude, you can't only do this. You know when things are going well, and 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 I don't know what mental health stuff he's going through. So I'm I'm not going to speak on any of that. But (laughs) it's just. It's no, it kind I, of pissed me off. I don't even think you need that disclaimer. I think it's absurd because you're basically saying, look, I want to be in a competitive situation. Fine. But if you're not, which, by the way, was your own choice to sign that extension after LeBron left, then you can't sit there and be surprised at why, you know, one of the greatest players of all times leaves and then your team is a little worse. Like you can't have both. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your 120 million and the competitive situation at all times. I agree with you. Like Draymond has openly talked about how he gave up basically the year Steph got hurt and Clay was out and KD left. But Draymond, we know, is a different kind of dude who thrives entirely on emotion and tenacity and that type of thing. It's a little bit more believable, especially because Draymond has been with that organization a lot longer and has succeeded with that organization a lot longer. Kevin Love doesn't get that kind of leash, in my opinion. And, and and Love, like you said, signed the the deal, the contract after LeBron left, and talked about openly being a leader and wanting to like still be, you know, yeah, um, the one of the key guys on this team. So, anyways, but that he's playing well though, forty percent from three. He's averaging five attempts a game. You know, twelve it's, points, it's the, seven rebounds off the bench. The That's Rubio great. Love uh, combo. It actually is, is is pretty good, I think, if you look at the numbers. And it's kind of similar to what they had in Minnesota, right? Like well, I was ago. just about to say, like, Blog Boys first started when they were like, Kevin Love and Rubio are amazing. You have to watch Minnesota to understand. And nobody could understand. And now we get to see this, like, mutant version of them <laughs> coming off the bench in Cleveland. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is um, you look at the way this team was built, right? Like, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Because um, Cleveland zagged. Right when everyone's like, when we talk about the Jared Allen signing, they had Drummond last year. Obviously, they got rid of him. That didn't work out. They signed Rubio. It's kind of the 
a lot of people are like, why would you make some of these kind of half moves when it's putting you in purgatory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they got a lot of young players, but at the same time, they're signing some of these vets. It's a weird mishmash of of bigs, and and they don't have a lot of wing depth, which every, you know everything about the modern NBA says you need wings, and that's actually yep. their biggest weakness. So, what do you think about that? Their team construction? Do they just luck into something, or do you think that by them going against the grain a little bit, that is one of the keys to their success? I clowned the Allen extension, if you remember, on this podcast and privately, four for 100. I was even more perplexed that they weren't going to deal love. And then on top of that, you know, it's like, have you seen that Vince McMahon meme where each picture, version of him, it's like leaning back in the chair? That was me. And then the final one was Lori Markinen sign and trade, which I was like, what is going on? And then they were like, we're going to start Lori Markinen at the three. And I was like, stop. This is just... And granted, like, you know me, I'm not a big college guy, so I've seen flashes of Mobley. I hadn't really seen him enough to know, like, what really he was going to do early on. And I just think that, like, you know, a lot of times I think we focus too much on offensive versatility and we forget to focus on defensive versatility. And if you think about why the Warriors were as good as they were with the death lineup, it was really defense, right? There were the five players could switch everything. Draymond could rim protect and jump out on screens. They had it all, right? You look at Allen and Mobley, even Markin, who's not a good defender, but Bickerstaff has got him in play in a good scheme right now. They can swallow up any type of offense, right? They can come out onto the screens. They could drop, play drop coverage. They can, of course, are both elite rim protectors. Like, offensively, it's a work in progress, and I think it'll get better, but you still are mucking it up with, like, a bunch of non-shooters because is not a great shooter. Markin has been, like, you know, very hit or miss this year. But defensively, it's like, like you said, they're just like the zag worked because they have such elite versions of, 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 of like top end talent. So it's like, to me, if, if Jared Allen was Rudy Gobert, I don't know that it would work as well because they would lose some of that versatility defensively. Right. Or if, or if, um, Evan Mobley was, uh, you know, let's say Ben Simmons playing the four where he couldn't really be a rim protector as much. The fact that they can do both, they can both yeah. do both, I think is really changed the way that I looked at this team. I mean, I like I said, I thought they were going to be decent. I did not expect this. So so that's rare, right? Having the two bigs who can both kind of rim protect, step out a little bit. Like yeah. how many teams have that? Because a lot of times when you have a very good defensive big, you, you play like an offensive-minded stretch four. Yeah. Right. Most teams are kind of built like that, at least their their core lineups. Um Yeah, look at um look at first of all, look at Utah, right? The way they play. They got Bogdanovich yep. with you know, they play Bogdanovich because so, they play who? Like Bogdanovich, um Mitchell, Conley, Royce O'Neal, and Gobert. Yep. So again, stretch four. Look at Miami. They play PJ Tucker, Jimmy Butler, Duncan Robinson, Kyle Lowry next to Bam. Yep. Um, everyone, even Utah, Denver, who Jokic has been amazing on defense this year, they play next to him. They play Aaron Gordon, right? Someone who can be on the perimeter, that type of thing. Nobody does this. Exactly. But but then, you know, the other thing is, did Cleveland get lucky, right? Because who would have known Mobley, his rookie season, would have been this big of a defensive force? Um, so it's kind of like a little bit, some of it to me feels a little smoke and mirror-ish, which is like, he has such a big impact on their team. Uh, I think he's only missed four games this year. They went 0-4. But, like, th- he's kind of the glue that holds it all together. And I think they struck gold, right? Like, if, if Mobley yeah. went, whatever, to the Rockets at number two, which 
was a legit possibility. Would this team be even close to as good? Like this could easily be one of the bottom teams in the. No, yeah, like let's say they took Evan, uh, sorry, Jalen Green, right? Because Mobley did go two. That would be the pick at three. I oh, sorry, they... three. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm saying assuming Mobley went two to Houston, maybe they take Green. Yep. I don't think I don't know what this looks like. I don't think it looks like this. I mean, I think he's been a linchpin um, because it just unlocked Allen to be you know pick and roll kind of dive. I think you know. But part of this, and I'm not going to do the Bill Simmons where he's like, KG is his floor as a player. Um, <laughs> part of this, Kyle Pitts, the worst he could be is uh, it's Travis, Travis Kelsey. Kelsey. Which is just like an amazing thing to say once. You know, he records six hours a week. I can understand saying stuff like one at one off. Like we all probably say dumb things every now and then. But like to continually double down on it on all the Kyle Pitts coverage is just amazing. <laughs> also the mock draft that he did in the NFL six games into the rookie year where he made sure it went up to 15, which was Mac Jones pick. Yeah. He's like, let's just reevaluate every pick. Should it have been who they picked or should it have been Mac Jones? <laughs> it's like, dude, you guys, you, you threw three passes and you won a game. So I don't know, like let, let's wait for we get fitted for the gold jacket. Maybe just like a tad, but um, anyway, nonetheless. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is the NBA, right? It's a game of what ifs. As a Kings fan, you are more than well versed in what ifs that don't go your way. Uh, yeah. As a Wizards fan, I have a number that I can pull from. Sometimes you just need to have them go your way. And for whatever reason, Cleveland has had an amazing draft uh, sort of outcome play out for them for the last 20 years. It landed them LeBron. It landed them Kyrie. It landed them the pick that got them Kevin Love. You know, Anthony Bennett, they blew. But then they're right back here and they get Garland at five and – Mobley at three, so. Yeah, and Okoro, you know, he's still raw. Yeah, I'm he, not, I don't know. Like, do you, are you an Okoro? I don't know. I don't know that I see, like, anything more than kind of role player. Oh, yeah, I mean, no, but he could be, when I say role player, I think he could be the fourth best player on your uh, contending team. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think he's just, like, he's 27% from three. Yeah, just he's still be, really raw. I mean, that's just not so going to cut it. I actually don't even know how they're doing this, frankly, because he can't shoot, and Mobley and Allen can't really shoot. I don't even know what's happening right now. But anyway, we're going to talk in circles about this same paradox. <laughs> Let's switch from a happy small market situation in Cleveland to a very downtrodden small market situation in New Orleans. Uh, talking Pelicans here, we, we sort of tease this at the top, but Zion Williamson, who had this bizarro secret foot surgery over the summer that we just found out at media day in early October, then was supposed to be back on the court in what, two weeks at the time. No, yep. ended up being, so now we're into eight weeks. Now he was recently cleared to resume five on five, which means you're about a week or two away from there until it was reported. He experienced foot soreness and he's going to be shut down indefinitely. You know, we're already 30 games in. I don't know if he plays this season it, possible that he doesn't it may be even be probable that he doesn't which means another wasted year two out of the three years he was not healthy for and he's extension eligible this summer so the pelicans have fucked up almost the entirety of the zion williamson williamson experience he's had his own challenges with conditioning and health and all those kinds of things so let's say you're david griffin how do you even look at fixing this or moving on in a positive way from the situation right now, because there's not a lot of hope I think in, in, in New Orleans. So I, I think 
look, you never know with these foot injuries and with a big, you don't know how serious it is, if it's going to affect his career long-term or not. I think the best thing that they need to figure out or what they need to figure out is to get Zion on the right diet, right training regimen. And I don't know what it's going to take, right? Like from all accounts, he's a good kid. He's not a diva or anything, but at the same time, I, I think there's been frustration with that organization about how he's handled his, his diet, his workout routine. Um, obviously this summer it, it was unfortunate because of the injury, he couldn't run. So he put on a lot of weight, but at the same time, he's got to have, Oh, a, a, I don't think it's an, it's uh, like, you know, you got, you look at guys like Luca who, who had weight issues. It's been documented. He came into training camp, you know, wildly overweight. Luca can get away with it, play himself into shape. Now that Zion's already had this track record of injuries and foot injuries, I don't think he can mess around. And the organization needs to come up with a plan for him and be really regimented in, on how he kind of manages his weight and his health going into the rest of the season. Yeah. And then outside of that, what do you do, man? I don't know. Like, you have to extend him, right? Like, you have to hope that this guy is going to be like, we, the fact that we saw his potential, we saw how good he was, all NBA talent last year. Yeah. If you're the Pelicans, there's nothing you can do. You got to still hope that this is your lottery ticket and just hope the guy, like, you know, puts in the work. So I definitely think you have to extend him, not to spoil you, not to spoil your experience listening to the Simmons tomorrow, but he theorizes trading him right now um, because of the just massive amount of risk of a failed contract a la Michael Porter Jr., right? That's been his like kind of like the, the North Star of what to avoid, where you give him five years, $172 million, he plays 10 games and has to get back surgery. Now, Porter Jr.'s injuries are a little bit more longstanding than than Zion's, but you could argue, like you said, foot injuries with big men can become recurring and can become uh, chronic, right? And so that's the that's the real excuse me that's the real risk here, where you're talking about what is he going to be as just from an availability standpoint. We know every time he steps on the court, he's a just absolute monster. I think career PER 26, he's averaging 27 and seven for his career, basically like scratching the surface of what he can become. They have plans to play him at point guard 15 to 20 minutes a game this year. Um, So that shows you just the range of his skill. I think I worry because yes, you have to, you got to keep him, but like, why is this situation where we can't get him in a more regimented program? Right. Even with Luca, I don't understand like, Luca's a first-team All-NBA guard at 22 years old, has the world in front of him, has not advanced out of round one, so it's not like he should have any type of arrogance about what he's achieved in the NBA, which is absolutely nothing, as much as we all love you, Luca. I just don't understand the coming into camp 20 pounds overweight. Last year, the excuse was he didn't think the season was going to start till February. This year, it's because he took too much time off relaxing after the Olympics. <laughs> LeBron never did that, right? MJ never did that. Like Giannis never did that. Durant doesn't do that. And if we want to talk about guys like Luca and, and to lesser extent Zion in those terms, you got to be judged by what the greatest of all time do. Right. And I think that's, what's so frustrating about both of those players, but New Orleans has done a terrible job surrounding Zion. They've had three coaches, I think in the three years he's been here, right. You know, Gentry, Stan Van Gundy, and then now Willie green. And they've cycled out teammates left and right, some of which he's campaigned for them to stay, including Lonzo Ball. So part of this is like, 
I don't think there's any way he he waits and just signs a qualifying offer given his health risk. He's he'll sign the super max next summer if it's or the the max if it's offered to him. Which maybe you do and just pray, but this current trajectory is going to lead to four or five more years of them just losing and then him asking out and potentially holding them hostage, uh, leading to a situation where they don't get back what they deserve in a in a potential Zion trade. I just don't know what's the alternative, right? They don't have. They've got Ingram. They've got some assets. Fine. But what's what's the plan? I think you have a potential lottery ticket in Zion. You've right. seen that lottery ticket almost cash out with the way he was playing last year. At this point, like, what if they let him walk? He goes and becomes a star somewhere else. Like, I just don't think you can live with that as a franchise. And I think you just you go down with, with the ship with Zion. I think you extend him and then you see what happens. Like, I, I really don't think that trading him I don't, you're not, because whenever you do these trades, you're not going to get one big young star back. It's going to be a, a poo poo platter of, of assets. We would have um, never seen a trade quite like this for a player who is as good as he is, as young as he is, and not like a malcontent the way like a DeMarcus Cousins was. Whereas he, if he was traded, you know, it wouldn't be as weird as this situation. Yeah. This would be, I mean, it's one, this would be unprecedented as far as I know. Um, in recent NBA terms, I know. In, older terms or contracts were different and you know, things were different in the way things were structured in this era, this would be unprecedented. It would be. And I'd be curious, like would the Pelicans have leverage or would teams be able to hold that medical history against them? I mean, Zion is such a tantalizing talent that I think there would be quite a demand. I mean, I'd ship my, the entire Kings. roster. Yeah. Why not? Let's do it. <laughs> but the thing, I mean, like, yeah, everyone, you would have to just give it all up and just hope for the best. To me, it's like, to your point, it's like, they just got to go down with the ship no matter what that ship is. So if he isn't a successful NBA player, it's it's a wrap for this franchise. Whether that's they keep him and he doesn't pan out or they try to trade him. If he's not a successful player for the Pelicans, let's say, it's a yeah. wrap for the franchise, right? They're moving to Seattle or they're moving to Vegas yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, it might be, yeah. And, and th- this is your one way, like, this is the lottery ticket to save you. Yeah, because if I mean, there is look, there is upside. I don't think everyone we're we're all talking doom and gloom because it's a foot injury. He's a big man. But like this guy is still young, like super young. Um, So maybe it's it's early enough that it's not going to be and it's maybe not as chronic of an issue as, you know, it's not a Greg Oden or or someone else who are looking at something that is trying to real his career. There is optimism that this they can manage this. There's optimism that. After the season, maybe they shut him down this year. He comes back next season, and he's the same guy he was last season. Right. And you have to bet on that possibility if you're the Pelicans. Like, you just have to. And they're going to look terrible this year without him, right? Like, he's the focal point. They're 26th in offense, 27th, 26th in defense. Like, But the thing is, Brandon Ingram, he's 24. He's averaging 23 a game. He's been around that for a couple of years. You know, Valanchunas was a nice add, 19 and 12. They got, they have bodies, but their bodies are all missing the superstar that he's supposed to be. Yep. So it's so hard to evaluate how good this team is or isn't because they're very Zion-centric with the way they're built. Um, now, I don't think it's a great roster around him. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he shows up. They're going to be a five seed in the West. Like, I don't even know. If, I mean, they should be able to get – get into the plan, right? I think the Kings are currently 10th, but... Um, are we? You were. I mean, I know you lost a couple... Of, it's it, it all moves around in the bottom there, but yeah. you can't evaluate anybody without seeing what they play like next to the guy they're supposed to play next to, um, especially with a unique talent like Zion where it's 
you know, everyone's going to play differently with him versus without him, just given how uh, one of a kind his game is. So, so that's the other problem, right? Like they needed one more year to evaluate whether this Ingram Zion fit can work. Cause already last year we're seeing that Zion with the ball in his hand in that point position, you know, him and Ingram was kind of an awkward fit, even yeah. though Ingram had a great year last year. I, I thought maybe this year would be the year to figure out whether they can be compatible or you need to ship Ingram out. But once again, you lose out on a year, right? And so then what do you do? Do you yeah. try to move Ingram? Do you try it for another year? Like how long can you keep doing this? So The the, the parallels to Luka are funny because Luka has made the playoffs twice. He's lost first round both times. Clearly does not have a true second star despite making attempts to get one with a Porzingis trade and then trying to sign like Kyle Lowry in free agency, but it just never works for Dallas. He still signed that five-year max the second it was offered to him. Now, I do think that there's more a better relationship and way more success uh, in Dallas than in New Orleans, so they're not comparable from that standpoint. But it just shows you, like, if you put a five-year max in front of Zion, he's going to take it. Now, my advice, I guess, would be to structure it in a very incentive-laden way, the way the yeah. Embiid's, Embiid's first max was. But, you know, maybe... Zion's agent says, fuck off. Like, we can go get a full guarantee from anywhere. Uh, we don't need you. And, and that's what Zion's agent will, agent will say. Embiid's yeah. situation was a little bit different because he hadn't even proven. Yeah, he missed his much. first two years and he played 31 games a second, 30. Yeah, so. Zion already – was he all NBA last year or no? He wasn't. He, he was, was an all-star. Yeah, he, he just missed it. He just missed it. But I think I, me or you, one of us had him on our all-NBA team. Yeah, like he's got that resume already. So I, I think his agent is they're going to play hardball for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. I mean, I think um, long season, I hope he comes back. I don't know. You know, indefinitely is always one of those things. We have no idea what that actually translates to, but we'll see kind of where he where he lands on in, in some of that. But all right. Switching from uh, the small market world to the capital of basketball. Los Angeles and the Lakers. So they, the Lakers have had a very, very topsy-turvy season thus far. They came out of the gate pretty flat, uh, just given the fit with Russ and trying to get, you know, AD back to his old self. LeBron was in and out of the lineup first with an injury, then with COVID and a lot of moving parts. They seem like they've stabilized a little bit um, and they're definitely playing kind of, you know, their best basketball of the year. They're 15 and 13. Two things I want to say before turning the floor over to you. One is, was there some type of league rule that allowed them to play all the worst teams in the league like 10 times each? Because I honestly, like, I'm looking at their game log and they've already played Detroit twice, Oklahoma City three times. Um, where is this? Like, this is crazy. Like, the the teams that they've played, um, they played the Rockets twice. Uh, they played the Timberwolves, the... the um, the Blazers, like the Spurs, who's, who were below 500, like when did they – why aren't they playing the they, good teams? They played the Kings twice. The Kings twice? Like what, what is going on exactly? Like when do I, when do they start playing the actual teams? It, it's so funny you said that because like they'll play Orlando. I'll be like, isn't this the third time they've played Orlando? Like how yeah. – and then they're in the East. Like it, it, it makes no sense. Like – um, yeah, their schedule has been a cupcake schedule and they've struggled. Look, I, the Lakers, there's nothing new to say about the Lakers. I think Russ is stabilizing a bit, although a report came out today, right? I don't know how true it was, but the report saying that 
they they'd look they want a piece like uh what's yeah, what are they gonna what are they gonna get from him man like they're not gonna ha- like what are they gonna get in a trade for russell westbrook he's already been traded all around the league for everything he could be traded for yeah no no i i don't I, i'm not sure if that report there's any meat behind that report anyway i think the the what's scary for the lakers what's here's what's good here's what's good is it's lebron still has that juice the problem is he's wasting it on these regular season games against these crap teams when we know he just doesn't have the same kind of stamina to do this throughout an entire season. Like his string of these 30-point games and he's looking spry with the chase down block. He's 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 goofing around with the glasses, you know, he's having fun, but he's not getting they're not getting enough from AD, man. AD looks broken. I don't know what it is. I don't know if you, every time I watch him the body language during the game, post game, he just doesn't seem like he cares at all. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest problem. Like, forget about LeBron, forget about Westbrook. I think ultimately, if AD is going to be this shell of himself and his shooting is apparently never going to come back, maybe the bubble was just a total anomaly. Like, this team isn't going anywhere. I don't care how weak the West is. So, yeah, I mean, I. The AD thing continues to be perplexing because his numbers aren't bad on the surface, right? You look at it, it's like 24 and 10. It's a little bit down, but playing with LeBron and Russ, that's pretty natural, right? Yep. You know, the efficiency is there from two points. From three points, a joke. He's shooting 16%, but uh, sorry, 19%. But like, I guess you have to watch, right? And I think this is your point. There's a disinterest. There's sort of like this disengagement. Like, I don't know that he's really going all out on both ends. And like, you're sort of trying to wonder like what's going on. The whole point of this operation was that LeBron was going to do this for a few years and then kind of fade into like the second star. They wanted to put AD as the MVP guy. And I don't know if Russ is messing him up a little bit just because how helter skelter he plays and getting in for rebounds and stuff like that. Like, I don't know if that's part of it. Like it obviously takes an adjustment period to play with Russ. Like I watched that last year in Washington. Um, But I don't know because like LeBron is playing at a very, very elite level um, and a level that a lot of people, you know, wash King of stuff aside, you know, I don't know that people considered him still like a top five guy in all circles. Like I think a lot of people were like, look, it's wait and see. I'm not going to count him out. It's the Brady. It's the Brady thing, right? Like you show me you're, you, you suck. Like I'm not going to tell you you suck. Like I'll let you do it first. And that's at least how I felt about LeBron. But, you know, I would put him at the lower end of that top five um going into the season and maybe I still would now just the way Durant and Giannis have played but he's he he looks pissed off kind of um and he hasn't played really pissed off I feel like in a while maybe since like the year Kyrie left in Cleveland and he was you know really just not feeling that roster not feeling the fact that he got bolted on um and it kind of looks like that version of him which is fun to watch again yeah, th- well, that's what I worry about. It's fun for me as a LeBron fan. It's fun to watch. But the the worry for the Lakers should be he doesn't want to play this role. He wanted to concede it to AD. He went after Westbrook because he wants these guys to carry them in the regular season. And now he's realize- realizing he's like, shit, I got to do it myself. Um, and so it's a weird team, man. I, I I just think if they had Buddy, I know we've talked about this so many times, but Buddy healed like it would have worked out for all parties if they, yeah. if they had taken him. We got coups. You know, the the Wizards would be struggling a lot more, so maybe it wouldn't have worked out for you. But I would well, we're struggling good. anyway. But yeah, the the all the sheen off that first month is gone. Like I want to 
set the whole thing on fire. Like if we don't trade Beal at the deadline, we're dead man walking franchise. If we Remember, give Beal five years, two hundred fifty million, we'll never recover. In my lifetime, at least. Yeah, Beal. I I don't know what to make of him. Even I don't know if I want him anymore. He's twenty six percent from three, and his numbers from three have declined for five straight years. But what is it? Like, what is it when you're watching? Because granted, I haven't watched many Wizards games this year. So, so what? The weird what is thing happening? is. Okay, so this year you could argue he has some after effects from COVID when he got it this summer. Again, that's not been reported. I'm just guessing, but he, he's not vaccinated, right? So we know that he kind of didn't have any protection in that regard, but he just looks sluggish. Um, he doesn't look like he's getting to his spots as easy. He doesn't look like he has any lift on his jumper. Again, his three-point percentages have been declining from about 40, which is where he was early in his career with the Ray Allen comps, to about 35 last year. But to drop from there to 26 yeah. after 30 games, that's a big sample size. Um, it's like he's shooting 20% on wide open threes. Think about that. Like it's just a brick automatically. And Spencer Dinwiddie's been really weird, just like kind of deferring. Looks like he could still be kind of hurt from that ACL. Like yeah. whole thing's a mess. We started off strong because we played good defense and had some lucky shots, right? Not go in. You know, by the yeah. off, uh, so it looks like your percentages are better than they are. But um, anyway, nonetheless, get off my wizard soapbox for a second. Um, question for you: Did you think LeBron putting those goggles on was irresponsible during a pandemic? Um, just given the heightened importance of public health, your thoughts? Oh yeah, man! Are you kidding me? Like, I think that's I would never do that. Was gross. Suspension. Yeah, at least maybe I, um, permanent ban. The funny thing is. I wouldn't be surprised if Skip opened um, Undisputed with that exact take. I'm sure he talked about it. Like, there's almost no doubt that he talked about it. They talked about the goggles. The bag that he reaches into to find LeBron content is pretty amazing. (laughs) He'll be like, oh, Brooks Kepka stared down, you know, Bryson DeChambeau at the match. LeBron, if you ever did that versus KD, you'd have two more rings. And it's like, (laughs) what the fuck are you talking about, dude? I the whole goggles thing was so funny because not only was it just corny in the moment, you know, like such a dad kind of joke to pull, but then LeBron tweets about it, right? He's like, "Oh yeah, I just what did he say? He's like, I just like to have fun, or like you know, I'm always having fun with the game." <laughs> yeah, like it was just, I was like, "Dude, you gotta just, you gotta cool it, man." Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> um. But, uh, yeah, so I don't know. The Lakers, we'll see. I, I just – I don't think there's going to be much trade activity. You know, Taylor Horton, Tucker, and maybe we'll switch to that because there's so many names being thrown around right now. Is Taylor Horton, Tucker is the big one from the Lakers, aside from Russ. Looking around the league, who do you think are the names that have been mentioned the most that are most likely to be moved this year? Like, we obviously know Simmons is top of that list, but Pacers announced it, you know, not announced, but the rumors yeah. were that they're willing to move on from some of their pieces. You know, Portland's obviously in need of a shakeup. So, yeah. What do you, where, where are you at with kind of what what is the most likely outcome in this market, or who are the guys that you are – most intrigued by, I should say. Well, the Fox, there's the Fox rumors are heating up a little bit with talk really? about um, the talk about a potential what Sabonis, LeBert, kind of a package, and and the Kings. I think of Monty McNair is really, what would that be? Just Fox for those two? I forgot what it was, but I think it might maybe some other things were thrown into it. I don't like it either, but um, whoa, I like it if you're a Kings fan, right? I don't know. Like, what is Sabonis really? I'm not. I'm still not sure what Sabonis is. I um, think. I don't know. What's Fox? 
fair, fair. But but Fox is, yeah, I don't know. But Fox and, is a valuable asset. My point is, we can get a good return for him. I would hope. Across okay, the so let me ask you this: for Fox, would you rather have a package headlined by Simmons or by Sabonis? Simmons. Okay. But we're not point, sure if that deal is out there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We're not sure if that's one of the 30 players and, on And for Maurice me, it's list. not even about I don't believe in Fox anymore or I think Simmons. It's not that my stance has changed. I just think the Kings need to do something different. Like this, the player, they're all miserable. Yeah. Um, so I think Sabonis, um, I mean, Miles Turner's been in trade talks for so long. I know now, like, Indiana's officially taking the stance that, okay, they're willing to move him. Um, CJ, I don't know. It's all the same names. Um, I think that CJ, his value has dropped quite a bit because ever since last year's ankle injury where he was playing like an all-star, he just hasn't been that good. I mean, he's been fine, but he's making $35 million or $33 million a year, and that's a tough pill to swallow. It's like the Tobias Harris of guards at this point, right? Who, good player, useful player, on a contract that makes it very hard to add a ton of talent around him. And he's not a guy that I think could be the second best player on your title team. Like, we always penciled him next to Embiid and said it'll work. I don't know that if, let's just say, Simmons for uh, McCollum straight up. You know, there'd be other stuff. But Simmons for McCollum. I don't know that Philly, I mean, is Philly better than Milwaukee? No. Is Philly yeah, but better what, than... What, will, what can Philly do to be better than Milwaukee? Well, it could have Simmons come back and maybe play a different style of basketball, but short of that, I don't think that's possible. Like, I don't know. Like, I mean, his value is cratered, right? Like, if they got the guys that they were originally rumored to get, like a Dame or a Beal, then maybe there's an argument there. But the second tier of stars not going to move the needle for him at all, I think, unless they just go the total opposite direction and get, like, four guys. You know what I mean? And just get a ton of depth so they can play, like, nine deep of all really quality. Like, let's say you went to the Knicks. And you said, um, you know, I'll take Barrett, I'll take Randall, I'll take whatever and whatever, like Toppin and, I don't know, throw in someone, not quickly or whoever, but something like that. You get just three or four really good dudes, maybe that's an option. But then again, it's like, well, Simmons isn't that that. good to – yeah, Simmons isn't that good to demand that. DeJounte Murray is the guy, if they could figure something out there, who's been really impressive. I don't know if you looked at his numbers this year. But he's been awesome. Um, I've not paid attention to the Spurs whatsoever. Yeah, which you wouldn't. I mean, he's playing in total obscurity right now. But even if I pull him up right now, I mean, he's averaging like, let's see, what is this? He's averaging 18, 8.5, and 8.5 right now. Wow. That's like what we thought Simmons would evolve to before he decided to regress. So, I don't know if. I, I just don't, again, I don't see why the Spurs would like Simmons that much better than DeJounte anyway, to give up him plus like a Derek, uh, you know, Keldon Johnson or something like that. Yeah, it's just that guards are like, I mean, look, even Colin Sexton, we talked about earlier, right? On paper, amazing guard. But what's his trade value? Like, what does he fetch? I, I just don't think that the market for these, I, I know DeJounte Murray is an all around guard. It's different. He's not just offense, but. Yeah. I don't know what the value is for some of these guys. And Fox, another example, obviously, like obviously Kings fans overrate him a lot. But what are these guys? There's so many of them going to fetch on the market anyway. 
Well, there's this one like existentialist view about the NBA, which is just like, well, we don't have a top six guy, so I don't know what the fuck we're supposed to try to do here. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, well, we don't have Kawhi or KD or LeBron. Like, I don't know. Like, you want us to try to compete for title? Like, we Dejounte Murray moving from team A to team B doesn't do a damn thing. Kawhi doesn't even know what team any of these people are on. Like, he doesn't care, right? Like, there is that view, an element which is kind of depressing to think about, but somewhat of the reality with the way the NBA has worked for the last forty years. But there's the other view, which is all you want to do is bide your time until opportunity strikes, like Phoenix last year, where it's like the chips fell and it's all kind of in like the right way. And suddenly you're thinking about, um, okay, this is our time to strike. And so, you know, even now Phoenix is, would you say Phoenix is one of the five best odds to win the title? Forget what the actual odds say. Like, would you put them up there? 100%. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't have a traditional kind of like top six guy on their team, so it's possible. And so I think, you know. Yeah, I mean, you you take – I mean, look, the Bulls – what do the Bulls do this offseason? They they didn't get a top six guy. They just got a bunch of guys. And look, it's worked out well for them, second seed. What do the Hawks do the year before? They got a bunch of guys, Gallo, Bogdanovich, and and it worked out pretty well for them. I I, I think people get too hung up on the idea that you need a top – Yes, in reality, you do need a top six guy to win. Like, that's what all the history shows. Yeah. But you can't be, like, paralyzed with decision-making just trying to go after that top six guy. I feel like you're never going to get anywhere. And I think that's that's one of the problems OKC needs to figure out. Like, I've talked about this a lot. Like, I don't care if you have 30 picks. Yeah. None of these picks are have yet to translate to a, a top guy. You got to start packaging them and moving them now for – for players, like what are you gonna do? Just run SGA and Poku and and Giddy for the rest of you know the next did, couple of years? I don't know. Did, did we talk about the game they lost by seventy three? Do we actually talk no, about we did that? Not. No, no, we missed that. Yeah, to the Grizz. I know they were missing a bunch of guys, including those who you just mentioned, but that's hard to do. I mean, I think it was an NBA record, right? Extremely hard to do. I don't like, care how bad of a roster you have, and this wasn't them going against the the. 2017 Warriors. Yeah. The Grizzlies, the Grizzlies without, without John. John. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so we'll see. Cause like December 15th is the date that all the contracts that got signed over the summer are now eligible to be traded. So the, 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 the floor opens up, but you know, in a uh, options pricing where you don't actually call in your option until the end. Cause it's value is highest at the expiration. Yeah. That's kind of how the NBA trade market is. Like even though those trades are eligible, they're not actually going to happen most likely until we get much, much closer to the deadline in February. Oh, yeah. No, nothing happens. Like everyone's talking about this December 15th deadline. Nothing ever happens. Nothing monumental happens after that no. deadline. It's just like, hey, the trade machine will no longer have yeah. like a little X next to that player's we're, name. We're just fiending for something, you know, yeah. for some big moves. And that's one of the deadlines that yeah. exactly. you know, opens things up. All right, we're going to talk succession finale here at the end of this podcast. So if you haven't listened to, uh, sorry, you haven't watched season three, episode nine, this finale of this, this season's succession. First of all, I don't know what you've been doing uh, for the last two months and specifically the last 48 hours. But two, if you are watching it, you can turn off the podcast now and come back to this later or just not ever again. But we're going to talk succession really quickly before I, before we do, can I read you my all-star teams? That I came oh up with. God. This is as of December 10th, and I already admitted one of them is not going to be current. So, you ready for this? Yeah. All right. In the East, starters Durant, Giannis, DeRozan, Embiid, Levine. 
Wow, the Bulls get two starters. So the only thing is, if DeRozan's not guard eligible, because I don't know that he is, then he can't get in over Giannis, Duran, or Embiid. So I'm going to put Trey. No. Harden's on my bench, but I'm going Trey. So East bench, Harden, LaMelo, Trey, Jimmy Butler, Jason Tatum, Jared Allen, and at the time, Bradley Beal. I reserve the right to swap that out. With Garland? Garland or Sabonis, maybe. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'll give... nothing nothing egregious off the... All right, and I'll give you the no. West. Starters, Jokic, Curry, Booker, Paul George, Anthony Davis, only because LeBron only had 16 games played, I think, at the time, and he yeah. hadn't ripped off his recent stretch. Bench, Gobert, Luka, Donovan Mitchell, LeBron, Cat, CP3, Ja. I think that one's pretty straightforward. It's one of those things where LeBron will end up becoming a starter... He'll have enough games played, plus he'll get the number one votes and everything. Like yeah, that. votes actually. He's going to get it no matter what. But yeah, like you'll, yeah. Those seem, well, th- there's nothing that surprising across those, except for the East is the one that always has some new names in this year. If it's Jared Allen and Garland and guys like that, that'd be, uh, that'd be very interesting. It would be like, I, I don't want to compare Jared Allen to Jamal McGlory, but it does give me shades of like his McGlory-ish, one, yeah. his one all star appearance in like 2002. Um, all right. So, Transitioning to succession, um, just give me your thoughts here because we were blown. I mean, there's I don't know where to go. Um, I think where do we start? So I, let me ask you this: Did you see that coming in any sense? I did not, and I was surprised I didn't see it coming given how much they teased it throughout the season. So when we say what is coming, we're talking about Tom. Um, Kind of betraying Shiv and the and and the siblings for yeah. Logan in a power in a real power move, um, and and where they get kind of iced out in the acquisition. I think that here's my gut reaction. Right, so the entire time I've been watching Succession, I've been rooting fervently against Logan. Yeah, um, I've been Team Kendall all the way. I know Kendall's flaws, but regardless, he always has seemed like the good guy. And Logan has been the bad guy, right? The oppressive kind of father figure. Um, But Tom, on the other hand, has been the lovable guy everyone's been rooting for. No one's liked the way Shiv's treated him. They've all had sympathy for him. And so now for Tom to go side with Logan, I was very conflicted because I don't want Logan to win. But at the same time, I was happy that Tom finally made his move on the chessboard. Yep. And I think it's put the show in a really good place where both sides now have characters you can root for. And the struggle is is a lot more equal in terms of I don't know who I should root for and what I want to happen, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And firepower on both sides is a little bit more balanced, where it's not just Kendall versus the family. Kind of fighting like a one-man band, a little bit depressing, a little bit kind of like futile effort that he's putting together, right? He has a little bit more horsepower on his side now. Exactly. I think the thing that I was most impressed by when you think about this season and the buildup to it is there was a lot of like talk about how it wasn't that good of a season and, you know, ton of character development, ton of just people talking in rooms, not a lot of things happening. And that certainly was the case, right? By like episode five or six, I was kind of just like, all right, let's, let's see <laughs> something, right? Road. Because yeah. by episode five or six, I think they were like, yeah, well, you know, like the, the DOJ um, investigation is not yielding what they thought. I was like, well, wasn't that supposed to be like the big crux of this story? 
was what that would yield and what that would mean to 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 Waystar. But then the last three episodes, Kendall's birthday, part one of uh, their mom's wedding, and then the finale were just unbelievable, right? Like the gripping way that they can make you feel the most uncomfortable you've ever felt watching television is really something like I've never experienced before with any other show. Um, truthfully, like I wanted to be team Kendall to your point, but then it was like, he's such a jackass himself that it was hard to kind of fully be that way. And that that's part of the show's allure is that nobody's really Teflon other than you could argue Tom with the way they've portrayed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they've made him a little bit of a, Aside from Greg, he's very much like a shoulder-shrinking type personality, right, to pretty much everyone else in the family. And, you know, they gave us so many clues. And I think what I was so impressed by was the fact that if you think about the way they've ended season one and season two, there were bombshells at the end of both, right? Season three, you had to expect that was going to happen. And there weren't that many permutations for that to be the case. Like, if Shiv had sold out Kendall or Shiv had sold out Roman. Like they were kind of fighting infighting the whole time anyway. Right. Yeah. This was one of the few that they hadn't really explored in some ways, but in the other ways they did explore it with the diner scene and saying, Hey, you've never, I've never seen Logan fucked once, like all that kind of stuff. And it's like, you're sitting there, you're like the clues were on the table. There weren't that many options. And yet still no one saw it because the, the art of deception was just on another level. Absolutely. And and I think that's what's so masterful about this show. Um, it's because after that happened, then you start to think about that diner scene. You start to think about all the different things. Even the conversation he has with Greg. Mm-hmm. Remember? Yeah. Right before in that episode. Yes. Like yeah. it's it all Yeah, they sense. just they told us right then. We <laughs> still didn't think it. It's crazy. Um and, and you know the funny thing is this season was slower for sure, but the dialogue, the character development, I found that like their conversations are so gripping and their interactions and the way they like just the, the history behind their relationships. You can see like how at times they'll support each other, but all the underlying resentments. And and I think just that, and especially that scene I'm thinking of in the birthday, remember at the very end of Kendall's yeah. birthday where so much. Oh my flying. God. That was the worst most painful it, scene of yeah it's it's, it's cringeworthy but at the same time it's like i don't know any other show that does dialogue that well um, yeah and, and the acting too right like the, the the facial expressions the emotions that they're all kind of exhibiting i think jeremy strong who plays kendall roy is pretty much locked up i think the awards for this season but then karen culkin right like he's yeah. right there like doing everything equal and so something a few questions for you. Let me ask you this first and foremost. Did you think Kendall was dead after season eight? Oh, sorry, no. episode eight. Okay. No. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even either. I didn't even realize that was like until the next episode they talk about that as like a, oh, you know, what happened to you? You Right. I didn't even think of it. Well, they put the New Yorker piece out right at that time, right? So people were like, Oh, is this almost reading like an obituary? And then the way they show it, he's clearly drowning. And clearly something happened, right? Because he spent at least one night in the hospital based on what uh, Comfrey told us. So in a way, I kind of liked how they were really nonchalant about addressing it after getting everyone wound up for a week. Cause like, Oh yeah. yeah, he's fine. And I thought that was also well done. And they of course couldn't have predicted what the reaction was going to be, but it was exactly how they had planned for it, they you know, for it. which is kind of amazing. And, and yeah, to, to me, that symbolized more of a rebirth for him. Right. Because right after that is kind of when he breaks down to the siblings. Yeah. 
and kind of lets that weight off his shoulders. And so I think instead of they wanted people to think of it as maybe it was a death, but then it actually is his rebirth. Yeah. That was cool. So that was one question. Secondly, what do you think the mom slash her new husband got to kind of be willing to sell out her kids? Because she went to bat for this in the divorce proceedings. Hates Logan. We know that her husband is infatuated with Logan, so he must have been involved somehow. What do you think would have pushed her to sell out her kids so egregiously by you know changing the divorce agreements? That's the thing. I don't think it was anything that big. I think it was like you know he, he, um, how her new husband wanted that flat. Yeah, I think it was something as trivial as some property or whatever. Because I I think she really doesn't care about the kids, and she's lo- only looking out for her own self interest and. I'm not sure that it, it took anything really significant or we're going to find out in the next season something crazy happened. I really don't. I think it's just she oh. just doesn't care. Yeah, and then she kind of told us that too, right? She's like, yeah. I'm basically a bad mother. Like she spent the last two episodes telling us that. But it still felt really bizarre that, I don't know, I guess maybe like you said, it didn't think it didn't appear to her that it was a big decision. It was like, oh, yeah, it sounds like a good deal. I guess the question is, like, unless she thinks of it as, like, her kids are going to get a ton of cash from the sale, and therefore they are going to be taken care of. Whereas they might have different motives of wanting to run the company, but she could look at it like, hey, I'm setting you up for generations to come with this decision, right? So I don't know. What do they get out of Well, I assume that they have the some sale. type of stock in the company, right? Or is it all based on Logan who's going to then give it to them? But they're all management in the company. Like they should have significant equity, I would think. That's what I figured, right? But if they're going to cash out big time, then why is it that big of a deal? Why is that? Because, because I know all of them want the power. Obviously they all want the power, the prestige, but they're all also not like people who have been in huge positions of power their entire life. They like being rich. They like being wealthy. They like having status and they can still have that if they're getting this big cash out. So I, so that, that, I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I think trying to go into the mind of the ultra wealthy, um, I just have to ask myself. Really, no, um, it, I guess it's because you have the money regardless, and the money is not what you're chasing. And like you and me, right? If you were given a check for fifty million dollars tomorrow, like, are you showing up at work the next day? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not, right? But. The people who are of that type of wealth are also wired way differently than you and I are in terms of like motive, in terms of like interest, in terms of like what, you know, ignites their passion. And the money is just to keep score, right? The money is almost irrelevant. They're going to be rich and do whatever they want and wear whatever they want and travel wherever they want, regardless of what the status is with the company. So I think for them, it's like, I want to wield the power of running this media conglomerate the money is irrelevant. And I think that's the funny, that's actually kind of the amazing part about it is like, they're just broken down to their core knowing that all they're going to have is like their billions of dollars. You know what I mean? And it's like this crazy way to portray something that seems like it's really fine, but that's, you know, they're, you can't compare their lives to our lives or anyone else's lives. Cause it's just different. It's, you know, apples and oranges. And ultimately, it's not even, I don't even know about the power. It's just their dad's respect, right? It looks like that's all, these guys just want yeah. that respect. Yeah, and they um, got played. And this was the ultimate disrespect that they got. Yeah. And what was so devious is Logan gave Roman a few cho- chances, right, in that room. I'm very curious if he had been like, 
then to double cross Shiv and and uh, Kendall because he was the last one to come aboard in that yeah. triumvirate, right? Um, if he decided to double cross and just be like, "No, I'm going to stay with Dad," would he have, you know, been taken care of, or would Logan have already known he was going to sell him out and still like left him for dry? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised with either outcome, right? Yeah, it's like the the latter could have easily happened too, and then it's like why. So what happens to Connor in this arrangement? Like he didn't really, I mean, he had that little spaz out about being the oldest brother and then was sort of gone from the episode. What happens to him? I don't know. And and Connor has always been more of a side character to me, right? He's more of comedic relief. Got, yeah. Like the, the core conflict is really with Shiv, uh, Kendall and Roman. Uh, I don't know if, Connor's story fundamentally changes. He's still going to have his own little weird pot line and, and show up here and there, but I don't think he matters in the grand scheme of anything. I do want to see if his presidential campaign ends up successful or not, because <laughs> so I guess that leads me to the next question is what do you think season four sets up as like a lot of people have been speculating, you know, just reading articles and reviews and whatever, that there's going to be something in the bylaws or whatever that puts the company back up for grabs, and that's going to be the battle. Is that how you see this going, or is it something else? Yeah, I think that that sounds like the most likely scenario. Plus, the siblings are going to team up for the first time ever. Um, right? They've all kind of been independently jostling, and this is the first time I think we're going to see them team up, and we're going to see the new Tom and shiv dynamic right assuming they probably get divorced and stuff happens but i think that is also going to be fascinating but either way man it's like it doesn't matter what happens with the story it matters who are the players positioned against each other yeah next year is the first time we're going to see the three siblings together assuming they're going to be trying to work together at least early on against their dad did you do you watch billions i stopped after a couple seasons yeah, I enjoyed I, it, but then I stopped after. I stopped after, I think, three or four seasons, and I want to say they're on five or six now. But it got really stale and repetitive with the way they just, again, they had players on the field that were intriguing to start, and they just ran out of ways to reposition them. Yeah, It was almost like you're playing pickup basketball, and you play for a while, and you're like, all right, we've played every combination of teams <laughs> yeah. that we can have. I worry, and I was really thinking Succession would lead there especially with what had started to get a little bit of a stale kind of middle part of season three. Then it ends, like I said, amazingly the last three episodes. So I have renewed confidence, but my only fear is because I think Brian Cox said they had two to three seasons left. My only fear is that it gets to that point where they run out of those permutations to, to like, let us like watch, you know? Well, well, the good news is there's an end game, right? Like he's going to die. Yeah. That's true. Whether in the next season or the season after, I don't think it's going to be more than two seasons beyond. So that is another source of conflict that is brand new that will immediately change things, right? It's just a matter of when they introduce it. Like how often are they going to keep doing this back and forth? At some point, they're going to kill him off. And I don't think the show is going to end right away. I think the show is going to have a little bit of, okay, now what happens? Yeah. Um, so they've still got stuff. You know, I, I know what the concern is, but I think they've still got... This isn't a show that's going to run for four or five more seasons, right? So I don't need no, to worry about no. that kind of thing. And that's the nice thing about HBO is that they don't, they're not trying to play to this massive audience. They have their subscriber base and that's going to be pretty consistent and they make good revenue from that. But they're not ABC at 7 p.m. on Thursdays trying to draw massive numbers just to get renewed. Like yep. they'll, they'll get renewed as long as the writers want to keep going. And that's, yep, yep. that's the beauty of premium television because you don't have to appease the masses. You can write to what the like content allows you to. 
which is also what made the last season of Game of Thrones so upsetting is because it's felt like they were just trying to make a Michael Bay movie versus doing <laughs> what they had done well all this other time. Exactly. But all right, that is a wrap for us. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe to Thick and Thin Podcast. Uh, please follow us on social media. Uh, let us know what you think about all of the different things that we have going on, NBA or otherwise, and we will talk to you next week.